0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, Yahweh came from Sinai, and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you when Moses commanded us Allah as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. Thus Yahweh became king in Jeshurun. When the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. Let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. And this he said of Judah, Hear, O Yahweh, the voice of Judah, and bring him in to his people. With your hands contend for him, and be a help against his adversaries. And of Levi he said, Give to Levi your Thummim and your Urim to your godly one, whom you tested at Massah, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Bless, O Yahweh, his substance and accept the work of his hands. Crush the loins of his adversaries, of those who hate him, that they rise not again of Benjamin, he said, The beloved of Yahweh dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. And of Joseph, he said, Blessed by Yahweh be his land with the choicest gifts of heaven above and of the deep that crouches beneath with the choicest fruits of the sun and the rich yield of the months. With the finest produce of the ancient mountains, and the abundance of the everlasting hills, with the best gifts of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwells in the bush, may these rest on the head of Joseph, on the pate of him who is prince among his brothers. A firstborn bull, he has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them to the ends of the earth, They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. And of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call people to their mountain. There they offer right sacrifices, for they draw from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. And of Gad, he said, Blessed be he who enlarges Gad. Gad crouches like a lion. He tears off arm and scalp. He chose the best of the land for himself, for there a commander's portion was reserved, and he came with the heads of the people. With Israel he executed the justice of Yahweh and his judgments for Israel. And of Dan he said, Dan is a lion's cub that leaps from Bashan. And of Naphtali he said, O Naphtali, sated with favor and full of the blessing of Yahweh. Possess the lake and the south, and of Asher, he said, Most blessed of sons be Asher. Let him be the favorite of his brothers, and let him dip his foot in oil. Your bars shall be iron and bronze, and as your days, so shall your strength be. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, Destroy. So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine, whose heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by Yahweh, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs." Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And Yahweh showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb, and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And Yahweh said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses the servant of Yahweh died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of Yahweh, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was one hundred and twenty years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him, and did as Yahweh had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom Yahweh knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that Yahweh sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 678 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, August 3rd, 2023. That was a reading of Deuteronomy 33 and 34, and that is the close of the book of Deuteronomy, which is to say that is also the close of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law Of Moses of the Old Testament of the Bible really remarkable poignant stuff there at the last and you can't probably imagine even what this was like because there have been so many portrayals of Moses there have been so many in film and yes we talk about Moses but what would it have been to have been there to have seen this, to have heard this final blessing on Israel, tribe by tribe, and then to go up on the mountain and to die after seeing the land that you will not enter into. To die undimmed, undimmed in the eyes, undiminished in vigor, which is to say, He was still of sound mind. He was still of sound body at 120 years old, which is, I'm sure, because God preserved him. God helped him to endure until the last. And then that was the end. That was the end of his life, his purpose here, at least until the eschaton, it would seem. The eschaton, when God will judge the living and the dead, God will Bring in his kingdom and judgment. Judgment for those who are not in Christ, who have been rebels, who have conspired against God, who have disobeyed God, who have rebelled against God on the one hand, and those who have trusted in Yahweh, who have followed in his ways, who have meditated on his word, who have sought to serve him with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind and to love their neighbor as themselves. But note here, in the last. When it says that he died and was buried, who buried Moses? And also, isn't it curious? No one knows, it says in verse 6 of chapter 34, no one knows the place of his burial to this day, but who buried him? So the servant of Yahweh died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of Yahweh, and he buried him, In the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. That is fascinating. Did God Himself bury Moses? It seems so. But why the secrecy? Why make that a mystery? Why keep everyone from knowing where Moses is buried? I think the answer is fairly obvious, given that Moses was. Such a great prophet, and he still is held in such high regard by so many. This is to say, perhaps Moses was not to be an idol. His burial place was not to become some shrine where people would come and worship Moses. Moses was a prophet of Yahweh, and we should worship Yahweh alone. We should honor the memory and the service of Moses. We should look for what can be a good example to us to follow in the case of Moses. We should learn from his mistake, the mistake most notably that kept him from being able to go into Israel, into Canaan, into the promised land. We should learn from that. We should also honor what he did that was faithful. But he is not to be worshipped. Yahweh alone is to be worshipped. And I personally think that is why we're not to know where he was buried. Because if we knew where he was buried, we would be tempted to make a shrine or a temple out of where he was buried and to worship him and to be obsessed with a dead man when we should be occupied and focused on a living God, the living God whom Moses served. We should serve that living God. I think that's why we don't know where Moses was buried. But just think for a moment about the blessing on each of these tribes, how it is a different blessing, but they are all blessed. Each of these tribes receives a different blessing that is particular to that tribe. And as a result, also, you can say that The whole of Israel is blessed in each tribe being blessed in different ways. And here we get something of a principle that we should carry forward into the way we think about our families, our work groups, our communities, our churches. Not everybody is the same. Not everyone is given the same blessing. If you are blessed in your finitude, in a different way. Be content, be glad that you received a blessing and not a curse, and focus on the goodness of God instead of how much better it would be you think if you had some other thing instead. That is one takeaway we should glean from the blessing of Moses on each tribe of Israel before he goes up on the mountain to die. Some people... Miss that entirely when they read the scriptures. We should not miss it. We should not overlook it. We should appreciate that each one is blessed in a different way in their particulars. If they receive a blessing from God through Moses here in Deuteronomy 33 and 34, that's enough. That's good. So, also, if we in our day receive a different blessing, that is good. Be glad, be content. Rejoice, be thankful, focus on your gratitude towards God for having blessed you in the way that he has blessed you and be a good steward of however he has blessed you. That is where life is to be had. That's where you will find yourself the most productive and the most alive, really. Speaking of time, I would bring to your attention A curious story I found on MSN when hovering over the little widget for the weather in the bottom left corner on Windows. A story by Diana Logan over at Exemplor posted to MSN. Modern Swiss watch mysteriously turns up in ancient Chinese tomb. Diana Logan writes, as of Thursday, People get buried with odd things. Beloved objects, sacred jewelry, cherished collections. The ancients like to get buried with their favorite weapons and coins to pay off denizens of the afterlife. But what happens when modern archaeologists find things in tombs that, well, aren't so very ancient? This story involves a dig in China nearly two decades ago that supposedly uncovered a very unusual artifact, a Swiss-made ring watch completely encrusted in mud and dirt, with hands frozen at 10.06. No one knows how this watch came to be in this 400-year-old supposedly sealed tomb, nor how this object may have made its way into the vault. However, there are several theories. The spookiest, of course, is time travel, that somehow time travelers from the future, where apparently ring watches are very much in vogue, accidentally left their trinket inside the tomb but other theories are more down to earth. The most likely is that the tomb was not nearly so sealed as the participants in this dig hoped, and earlier tomb raiders may have accidentally left behind the object. Alternatively, it may have been part of the ground above where the excavation was taking place and managed to make its way into the tomb during the digging process. A third scenario allowed it to be part of the horde of some burrowing vermin, which may have made headway into the tomb even if no remains were involved given the diminutive size of this ring watch. Either of those last two explanations seem pretty plausible, and honestly, all of those explanations make a lot more sense to me than time travelers. What I'm really curious about, though, is the makeup of this watch. I've never seen a ring watch before, but apparently they are absolutely a thing. Go figure. Now, let me just pause and reflect. This is story time for someone who is writing casually, And thinking through the possibilities and engaging in a critical thinking exercise and coming to the question of this watch, anachronistically, no pun intended, because it is a watch after all, out of time, no pun intended, because it is a timepiece after all, this watch showing up in an ancient Chinese tomb, approaching that with a certain degree of skepticism. And by a certain degree, I mean absolute skepticism. As in, we don't expect this watch to have been in this tomb appropriately. And so therefore, we don't believe that this watch actually is evidence of time travel. That's fine, right? Be skeptical. That's fine. But it reminds me of the old saying, If you see a turtle on a fence post, you know that it didn't get there by itself. You know that it had help. And that is to say, too, as we think through odd situations, odd scenarios in the modern world, we should not suppose that things just come together accidentally, randomly, by chance, for no reason. We should understand that there are causes and there are effects come from somewhere there has to be an original uncaused cause and as a christian i believe that that uncaused cause ultimately is god god is eternal some one something has to be eternal there's no getting around it i believe the uncaused cause is god himself the holy one of israel yahweh in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth Genesis tells us in the beginning, God, which is to say, God was there in the beginning, which is to say he was the cause, but then who caused God to be whoever you might postulate. You might theorize, you might speculate caused God or whatever you might speculate caused God would have to be God. But if you say, I just can't believe that there would be any uncaused cause at all. We just can't possibly know. I say, then what is your criticism of me as a Christian saying, I don't know the answer to the question of how God could be eternal. I can't fathom that. And yet I believe that it's true. Why would you criticize me as being irrational or unreasonable or silly or somehow unscientific? We're in the same boat. It's just the question of what or who we believe to be eternal. If you deny that there must be an original uncaused cause, then you are denying reality. But a watch turns up in an ancient Chinese tomb, and it is fun and exciting to think about time travel possibly being a thing. And, oh, by the way, if God, if God is eternal, then it would seem that it is possible for time travel to occur, but it would be conditional on God. If God permits it, if God allows it, then it's possible. Which is to say, God is not just eternal. He is also the creator. He is also the ruler over the universe. He is not subject to the laws of the universe. The laws of the universe are subject to him. And that means that time and space and, and physical matter, and energy, and all the rest, all that is, all that exists, must obey the laws of God. And even if we say certain things can violate the laws of God, in a certain sense, that's not true because when suffering consequences that we would deem negative, even what violates the commands of God still obeys the laws of God because With the command comes the promise of blessings for obedience and a curse and punishment and ultimately destruction if there is no obedience, if there's disobedience, if there's rebellion. And so after a fashion, all must obey, whether towards obedience and a blessing or disobedience and punishment. But the Swiss watch, just hypothetically, like Diana Logan over at Exemplore. Hypothetically, let's imagine this Swiss watch traveled through time on the wrist of someone who visited this tomb and it turned up in this tomb. Or perhaps this watch was on the wrist of someone who traveled back in time to ancient China and lived among the Chinese and passed away after a normal lifespan. They didn't suspend the aging process, but they did travel back in time and they lived among the people and then they passed away at a ripe old age, perhaps, and they were buried and they were buried in a tomb that we have in recent decades discovered and explored and excavated and investigated. And now we find this watch. Isn't it an odd paradoxical thing If it were possible for someone from the future to go back in time, would they really be able to make a huge difference in the way things turned out? I mean, that's a paradox. That's a classic problem of logic, a mind-bending question. Would they be able to change the course of history? Now, while you're thinking along those lines, with regards to a finite man or woman, hopping in a time machine, going back in time, affecting things so that a different outcome would be achieved in their own timeline in the future, consider with me, if you will, that God knows the end from the beginning, and he is intervening in the course of human events, in the course of human history, as it pleases him, kind of like a time traveler, except not quite the way that we would. And just think with me for a moment about how God knowing what the outcomes will be and then also intervening and suspending the laws of the universe, suspending his own laws or not really, actually, because the law ultimately is that what he says goes. So even when we see a miracle or a sign and a wonder, it's not a suspension of the natural law. It is still law because that thing, that process, that person, that situation is subject to God and whatever God says goes. The law ultimately at the end of the day is what God says will happen, will happen. He will see that it happens. He will make sure that it happens. But then another paradox is that we within that framework have choices to make. And then how do we make our choices? Are we open to reason? Are we persuadable? Some would say it's all biological determinism. It's all whatever is in the genetic code for you to be capable of, and no more. We are all programmed creatures of instinct. And you know what? There are plenty of people who function like brute beasts, as it's said in the New Testament unreasoning animals, good only to be caught and destroyed at a certain point. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. But then that's not everyone. And why are some that way? And why are others capable of making decisions, choosing obedience or disobedience, choosing to believe or to not believe, choosing to live a life of righteousness and wisdom, or choosing to live a life of sin and folly and vanity and hubris and selfishness and blasphemies? And idolatry and deceit. God knows. But again, either way, all things work to the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so, however, this watch came to be in a Chinese tomb, what's not in question is whether God permitted this watch to end up in the Chinese tomb. And I'll just say personally, as exciting as the potential for time travel might be, unless there's more evidence than just this watch turning up, we should not suppose it is evidence of time travel. But on the other hand, no pun intended because this is a watch after all, on the other hand, I do hold that people who lived millennia ago were far more advanced than we typically give them credit for. And I also hold Someday, we will understand that. Someday, we will grasp that in a way most of us just can't right now. We will know even as we are fully known. I like to think that eternity will contain the option for us to go back and survey what happened in the course of human events in the old heaven, in the old earth, I like to think What it means for us to know, even as we are fully known, is that we will get to see, we will get to review the tapes, so to speak, and understand better what was going on in a way that will not relive all of that, but see the hand of God at work, intervening, blessing who he would bless, cursing and bringing low those who did what was evil. And that thought, that is a sobering thought. That is an inspiring thought in its way to imagine that what we do now, not just God knows, but someday we will have eternity before us to review. And those with us, if we're in Christ, our brothers and sisters in Christ will also be able to review what it is that happened in and around our lives, and it will be like an endless library of stories to read, to watch, to listen to, to contemplate at our leisure when we're not busy building up the new heavens and the new earth that God puts us into to work and to worship him in. Coming back to the present, though, a notification hit my phone this morning that someone had shared a post to the premium career group on LinkedIn, a certain Anthony Freda, this post reads as follows. Diversity, equity, equality, inclusiveness, and belonging are interconnected concepts that are crucial for creating a fair, supportive, and productive environment, and it's not limited only for the organizations. While we start understanding these concepts, our earlier assumptions will get changed. Differences will be understood and accepted. It will create more equitable and compassionate world where everyone has the opportunity to reach their full potential, end quote. Contained in the post is a picture with shoes explaining equality, diversity, equity, acceptance, and belonging in relation to footwear. Equality, it says, is everyone getting a pair of shoes. Diversity is everyone getting a different type of shoe. Equity is everyone getting a pair of shoes that fits. Acceptance is understanding we all wear different kinds of shoes. Belonging is wearing the shoes you want without fear of judgment. And unless you've been living under a rock, you know that this is DEI. This is social justice. This is cultural Marxism. This is woke corporatism. This is communism. Communicated by way of an analogy a parable, if you will, of shoes. So I commented here about an hour ago. Ah, the game is afoot. Let me tweak this along a few lines. Equality is everyone being free to buy whatever shoes they please of whatever kind seems best and to own as many pairs legally as they should like or can manage. Diversity is having different kinds of shoes to choose from. If you want to as seems best to fit the occasion and your feet. Equity is that equal protection of the laws to buy and own shoes, particularly if someone steals your shoes or tries to confiscate them for socialistic redistributive schemes to make themselves the most important and powerful in the land, controlling where everyone can walk to by extension of controlling what everyone can have in the way of footwear. Acceptance is understanding that some people buy shabby shoes and suffer for it, while others have nicer shoes than I do without envying them for it or trying to overhaul society to guarantee identical outcomes to go a step farther. We might even aim for contentment and gratitude. Belonging is when you're home with family or close friends or a church and can just kick off your shoes and put your feet up in a place where we all have better things to do with our time than promote cultural Marxism with analogies about shoes. So far, the ratio of likes on my comment is about 1 to 100. There are 1,300 likes, loves, and that was insightful type reactions from the LinkedIn premium career group community. On the original post, my comment is the one to beat. It looks like With 13 likes, one of those, I suppose, is that insightful light bulb reaction, but 12 of them are likes. And so I'm about 100 to one likes on the original post versus likes on my comment. I'll take those odds. That's fine. One of the replies to me is from a certain Bruce Ford, who says, Garrett Mullet, reality is not everybody gets shoes. To which I replied, true enough, Bruce Ford, and that has always been the reality, but then the reality is also that we should look to foster and preserve the conditions, which are most likely to rectify that for those who want and need shoes. And Of course, what I mean by that is let people make shoes and sell shoes and buy shoes freely and don't confiscate shoes and the raw materials that go into making shoes and don't so regulate and tax the shoemaking industry and the shoe selling industry and the shoe buying business that no one is free to do anything except have the exact same outcome as everyone else. You might call it free market capitalism. Free market principles have been proven to bring the most people out of a condition of life in which they have no shoes and they can't get new shoes when their shoes wear out or they have to buy cheap shoes. Free market capitalism has its downsides to be sure, but that's life. And remember what I was saying about Moses giving a different blessing to each of the tribes in Israel in Deuteronomy 33 through 34, Remember also that there are curses. There are curses for disobedience, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes, the curses that we see, the downsides that we see to free market capitalism or anything else, are simply the consequences for sin. Sometimes that's all there is to it. And if you go implementing communism to guarantee identical outcomes, what you're really doing is saying, there shouldn't be any consequences for sin and folly. But then other times it's not the person's own sin and folly that has led them to a condition where they can't get shoes at all or they can't get appropriate footwear. And in those cases, what we should be looking at is how do we come through for those people? If we have extra shoes, maybe we give them our extra pairs of shoes. If we have the means to buy more shoes, maybe we buy them shoes, particularly if they're a member of our extended family. If they're a member of our own household, we definitely have to do that. But if they're a member of our extended family or if they're neighbors of ours, if they're friends of ours, if they're members of our church, we start there and then we work outwards as we have the ability, but we do so freely because the Lord loves a cheerful giver and communism is compulsory with the threat of force, deadly force even, always looming. I note that most of the comments in reply here are in support. Interesting, Tanvi Ahoguna replied six minutes ago. Love the visual explanation, Christina Toma commented. Ariana Hayes, That's a great metaphor. Everyone deserves a pair of shoes to wear, regardless of what it looks like or what it's for. It's just like company environments. We all come from different walks of life. Instead of weeding out the differences, we need to learn to coexist. Now, wait a second. Just wait a moment. Sometimes the differences do need to be weeded out. Say, for instance, if the requirement is you come to work wearing safety-toed shoes because heavy things are being lifted and carried and might be dropped on your feet You're going to crush your toes, break your foot. If you've been told that you must wear safety toed shoes to work, and then you insist on diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, equality, so called, where you get to decide whatever you're going to wear, you're going to wear flip flops, open toed sandals, no shoes at all, you should be weeded out because it doesn't just affect you. If you're carrying some heavy thing with someone else, and then you drop it on your toes, you haven't just affected yourself, you've also affected other people. So there are limitations to this. It is appropriate also, for instance, if we send soldiers off to war, or if we send law enforcement out into our communities, if we send border enforcement down to the border with Mexico here in the US, and we say you have to have appropriate footwear to be able to get about do your job, be dependable for others in your unit, your squad, your team. If somebody says, absolutely not, I feel like wearing high heels. It is appropriate to weed them out and to not learn to tolerate that, affirm that. It's important for us to learn to say, no, (laughs) that's not okay. Go get a job somewhere else because apparently this one is not a good fit. And oh, by the way, not everybody deserves a pair of shoes to wear. There's this idea that this is some kind of a human right, as if society owes you a pair of shoes. Society doesn't owe you anything. If you want a pair of shoes, go get to work. And if society is increasingly becoming socialistic and communistic and getting in the way and trying to keep you from getting a pair of shoes because they have to tax you so severely to make sure somebody else gets a pair of shoes. Well, then we have something to work out with society. If somebody is stealing your shoes, then society needs to get involved. The community needs to get involved and curb that, put a stop to it. That's where justice comes into play here. When somebody's trying to steal your shoes or defraud you in such a way that you can't get shoes, but you've worked and you've earned your money and you want to buy shoes, what you have a right to expect is equal protection of the laws. That's appropriate. And the laws should reflect the law of God, the justice of God, to reward those who do what is good, to punish those who do what is evil. But you don't deserve a pair of shoes to wear as if it's everyone else's responsibility to provide that or It's the radical left's blank check to take whatever shoes they don't think other people need and give to you. That's what we're really dealing with here. That's what's really at stake here. But you know, it's just that kind of trite, preachy propaganda, which we're all being subjected to here lately. That post on LinkedIn premium group is The kind of thing we're seeing all over social media, social media is very biased at a corporate level to promoting and amplifying messages like that and either demonetizing or else shadow banning or else outright suspending the accounts of conservatives who say, this is wrong. This is not social justice. It's neither sociable nor just. This is communism. And This next story I want to talk with you about is a piece over at The Hill, complete with a video, but there's an article as well, published July 31st, 2023 by Daniel De Vise. High school boys are trending conservative. I'm going to play the audio from the video for you. You can check out the article and the video in full if you would like to. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. But I'll play for you here, cut one, wherein this is being discussed and reported on. And then I have some commentary. Here it is, cut one. Take a listen.
1: 12th grade boys are nearly twice as likely to identify as conservative versus liberal. This is according to recent research from the Monitoring the Future survey, Since as recently as the late 2000s, boys who identified as liberal occasionally outnumbered those who said they were conservative. Back in the Carter era, both boys and girls leaned liberal. Now, girls of the same cohort overwhelmingly identify as liberal. The share of 12th grade girls who identified as liberal rose from 19 percent in 2012 to 30 percent in 2022. Only 12 percent of girls identified as conservative in last year's survey. However, in the 2022 monitoring the future survey, the largest group of senior boys, more than two-fifths, claim no politics at all, answering the liberal conservative question with none of the above or I don't know, nearly one-fifth identified as moderate. Joining us now to discuss this further is staff writer for The Hill, Daniel DeVisse. Welcome, Daniel. Hey, good to be here. So what does this show the trajectory over time? Is it, it's really the case that teenage boys are becoming right-wing? Is it a social phenomenon? Is, is it social media? Well, what do you think is going on here?
2: Well, it might be all of those things. Um, you know, I've, I've got a 19-year-old son. I think a lot of young males uh, in America don't really have politics, aren't really political. Um, parents out there of, of, guys who are around 20 will identify with this idea you don't really know what your son's politics are um, they're so busy with gaming and sports and social media and watching YouTube videos there isn't really time to get politically active so that's the most important thing is that the largest group of guys in this in this age group aren't political but those who are political this is true are about twice as likely to say that they're conservative as to say that they're liberal and that really, surprised me because we've read so many headlines saying that young people are getting more and more and more liberal, young people, period, right? And that ain't so, uh, at least when you break it down by gender.
0: Okay, so some quick thoughts. One, I think that part of the reason there's an uptick in conservative identifying, as they say, (laughs) which is uh, just the times that we live in, everybody identifies as such and such, but there's a kind of skepticism. Like, are you really conservative? We don't want to believe it. We're surprised, but we also don't want to believe it perhaps. Those 12th grade boys who identify as conservative now number something like a quarter. And actually this peaked, if you look at the graph, it peaked in 2020. And I believe that a large part of the reason for this is because of the COVID lockdowns. The COVID lockdowns, And the mask mandates and the vaccine mandates and the insanity of 2020, I think, spurred young men in particular to want to be more bold and to be more out in the open. And maybe there was an expectation that I'm going to get pulled into a vortex that is soul crushing if I don't speak out now, if I don't say, hey, this is not okay with me right now. Then it's curtains. Uh, I think that's part of it. I think males in particular are supposed to be more protective and 12th grade boys should be masculine. They should be assertive. They should be protective. They should have protective instincts. And if they were just kind of going along because everything was, as they were told, totally fine, hunky-dory, and then they see that there's this crisis moment and it turned them more protective You might say also that would influence whether they identify as conservative, whether they claim to be conservative. But it's interesting, too, when you look at the graph here, 2015 saw a pretty good spike in the number of 12th grade boys who would claim to be liberal. And then by 2020, the graph for liberal 12th grade boys. Takes a steep dive and it's just kind of leveled off at something like 12%, which is to say there is about a two to one ratio of 12th grade boys who are identifying as conservative compared with 12th grade boys who are identifying as liberal. And that's a good sign. It needs to be supported, it needs to be shored up and affirmed. But then What is being done with this? What will be done with this is to say we need to really tighten up censorship of conservatives online so that young men are not, as they say, radicalized. And what the radical left means by radicalized is taught to think critically about the blessings that we have in the United States, in the West. And how those got to the fence post, so to speak, not by themselves. What the radical left means by radicalized online is taught to be conservatives, thinking critically about whether progressive is the right term for it, or as Ben Shapiro says in this excellent Sunday special with Vodi Bacham, which I just watched last night on YouTube is this actually more correctly transgressive? Not progressive, because they're not interested, first and foremost, in progress anymore. Now that they're on about climate change and LGBTQ issues and abortion on demand with no restrictions up to and past the moment of birth, it's more appropriate to call the radical left transgressive. They're not really progressive, because they're interested in transgression as self-actualization. That is sin as liberation. If 12th grade boys increasingly are saying, this is dangerous. I'm not for that. I'm opposed to that. I'm going to get more vocal in being opposed to that. That's a good sign, but the left will try to destroy them for it. And the secret is, the flip side is, if we don't have young men trending conservative. If we don't have young men becoming protective of the blessings we've inherited from previous generations in the United States, in the West, then the radical left will succeed in destroying us all. Because the radical left is transgressive, and as they succeed, we will be a country who is more and more marked by sin being a reproach to any people. We will be farther and farther away from righteousness exalting our nation. But note also <clears throat> the commentary in the interview from Daniel de Vizet. Oh, you're young men. They don't know about politics. They don't know what they're talking about when they say they're conservative. Most of these young men, they're moderates. They have no political affiliation whatsoever. They're too busy playing video games, participating in sports, hanging out with their friends, watching movies, listening to music. You know, that Is actually not so good. And also, oh, by the way, it's not an either or. My sons can read Plutarch, can read Aquinas, and then go and play a board game or D&D or football or what have you with their friends. It is possible to do all of the above and actually to do the socializing, hanging out with friends, building community playing of games, all the rest, right? Enjoying or at least observing popular culture where you can. As a conservative, towards the end of correcting what is broken, what is being broken on purpose, systematically, through death works, in a cult-like fashion, it is possible for all of these things to actually go together. And as a matter of fact, fathers in particular— You should be training your sons to do exactly that. All of this together at the same time, not either or. Don't take an awareness of what's happening in culture away from your sons or your daughters for that matter, but they have a different path. Your sons need to know how to converse. They need cultural literacy, even if what the culture is communicating is vile and dishonest. Maybe all the more if they're going to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. 12th grade boys, they're not babies. And isn't it interesting? The Democrats want to lower the voting age to 16, and they want to insist that children should have the right to change their gender, take puberty blockers, choose preferred pronouns that are different than their biological sex. If God made them male or female, The radical left says your child has the right to, has the ability to decide to undergo surgery to remove their sexual function for life, their reproductive ability for life. But the message changes dramatically, I guarantee, if all of a sudden young people, young men in particular, start becoming conservatives. I guarantee you the Democrats will drop that bit about 16-year-olds being given the vote in the general elections if they think 16-year-olds are going to start voting for conservatives and undoing the radical left agenda, which young people have the most to gain from becoming conservatives. They have the most to lose with what the left is doing. I stand to lose more From what the radical left has done in this country than somebody who is, let's say, 50 or 60 years old. And I say that because those who are 50 and 60 and 70 years old, they were able to get into the housing market decades before this current Green New Deal hysteria. They were able to get in and now they own a home in many cases and they do have some retirement and it's not what it was before COVID nonsense and the housing crisis The housing bubble 15, 16 years ago, bursting, but it's young people. The younger they are, the more imperative it is that they wake up to how impossible the left is making it here in the U.S. for them to ever be able to afford to buy their own home, own their own vehicle, be debt free, except the radical left's idea here is you will just own nothing. It's okay. Our idea of equity is, since we can't give everybody a house and we can't give everybody a car, we'll just say nobody owns anything. And the Soviet commissar, the central committee in your area, will decide where you live and what you drive or how you get to and from work or whether you work or whether you eat based on your social credit score. Young people need to wake up and shake off the indoctrination of the godless and they need to dust off their inheritance as Americans, as the children of Western civilization. So personally, high school boys trending conservative is really good news and we need to feed that, affirm that, reward that, support that. We need to train that. We need to encourage it. This is a generational problem by and large. And the solution may just be in a previous generation, the boomers in particular, also Gen X, insofar as Gen X has just been falling over itself, trying to ingratiate itself to the boomers as the baby boomers pass away, as Gen X is watered down in their representation in broader society, and they don't have the baby boomers to tell them what to do anymore to withhold affirmation, withhold material support, or maliciously try to abort them in their adult years, just like they aborted so many Gen Xers in the womb. As that shifts, what we will find is millennials and Gen Z in particular are going to make up a larger and larger share of the voting public and American society and the next generations, hopefully, we should hope and pray, will turn and seek the Lord's face and live. But that's going to require being conservatives. It just is. In other news, university will pay Christian student $80,000 for silencing conservative views. Three professors will take mandatory First Amendment training. Some reporting by May Reed Elordi over the Daily Wire, July 28th. Highlights, Southern Illinois University ordered to pay a Christian student, Maggie DeJong, who graduated from the school's art therapy counseling program last year and sued them. Also, last year, Southern Illinois University must pay her $80,000. They settled the lawsuit this week, according to DeJong's legal team at Alliance Defending Freedom. Essentially, what happened here. And you can read the full article for yourself if you want more context. What happened is that DeJong was complained about to faculty at Southern Illinois University. She was complained about because she would speak up during class discussions about hot-button topics, critical race theory, gender, sexuality, social justice. She would speak up and communicate her outspoken conservative and Christian views. And then also she had an Instagram account where she was posting criticism of COVID policy and also censorship online. She was complained about to the faculty and the response of the faculty of this university was to put gag orders and no contact orders, banning DeJong from having any contact or even indirect communication with three other art therapy graduate students who had complained. What law had she broken? What policy of the school had she violated? What rule had she broken? Nobody could tell her. And they also refused to allow her to appeal and to know what exactly she had said that was violative. And so the courts decided her First Amendment rights had been violated by this university, but then it's a curious thing. It's a very curious thing that this happens so often and you hear about it so seldom. It produces a chilling effect in so many, but we need students like Miss DeJong here who are willing to be outspoken and yes, file a lawsuit when the time comes because there has to be a legal protection for expressing what is true what you believe to be right and good and necessary, especially if the advertisement is we're going to have a discussion about where we're all at on this. If the insinuation is we want to get to the truth, well then, when a Christian and a conservative starts cross-examining the testimony of the progressives and the progressives can't keep up and they say, ah, silence. If we don't have the protection of the courts, it is only going to go one way. And it won't stop with gag orders and it won't stop with punitive measures against a student. What will be communicated and signaled to the broader populace is it's open season on this person, whatever you have to do to get them to be quiet. And ultimately, that is what drives violent repression of dissent in totalitarian states. It's typically not that they do this or that, first and foremost. It's typically that they criticize what they believe to be not true and not good and not right. It's typically that they are expressing grave concerns about corruption, abuse, and those who would try to silence you will if they can't get you to be quiet just by telling you to shut up. They will, in due time, if not themselves, told, that's enough. No, let her speak. Let him say what he is trying to say. They will, in due time, become violent until they get compliance. And this is, oh, by the way, why the First and the Second Amendments to the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, go together. Because typically, it's when you speak up and you are engaging in the public discourse that someone is going to want to be violent towards you to make you stop it if they're corrupt and you're exposing their corruption or if they're unwise and you're exposing the folly of their position and that upsets them that embarrasses them that might actually get them in trouble if you start to get traction if people start to be won over by the force of your arguments by the merit of your positions well they can't have that and so they have to disrupt but It's a scary thing when universities, when corporations automatically take the side of the ones who want to silence all dissent. That's a scary thing. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. So good on this young lady, Maggie DeJong, for sticking with it. We need more courage, more boldness more of a willingness to go the extra mile in protecting the right to speak freely in this country and to cross-examine. The first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. If the second who would come and examine the first to state his case is destroyed or silenced or threatened into acquiescence, that is corrupt. That is definitionally totalitarian. And oh, by the way, it's sinful. It's not just that I don't like it. It's not just that it makes you uncomfortable. It's not just that it violates some amendment to the Constitution or this or that law. It violates the laws of God. It's an oppressive thing. God takes this very seriously. We also are supposed to take it very seriously. Bearing false witness against your neighbor is a sin, it makes the top 10. To not testify when you see someone else who is innocent being abused by the proceedings of the court or the court of public opinion, to say nothing when you are a witness is also sin. Rescue those who are being led away to the slaughter. Don't pretend it's not your business. It is your business. But I would bring up here something I've been teasing and mentioning in episodes here the past few weeks, I would bring it up again that it's so important how we model this for those who don't know Christ, how we model this as Christians, how we model this in the church. It is so important that we would have honest dialogue with each other, that we would be respectful and that we would not, in a selfish ambition and vain conceit way, silence All questioning, all disagreement, all concern, all disagreement in the church in the name of so-called unity or in the interest of the so-called gospel, there is an older man in Montana who I know, who I'm related to, who has in recent months been church disciplined out of the church he and his family have attended for years because he would not shut up about A rather tertiary question of Christian doctrine, which wasn't even all that controversial. For the first several centuries of the church age, it was not uncommon for there to be polygamists in the church, and the early church fathers wrote about this. And by Augustine's time, there was an evolution on the question to where it was decided That polygamy would be declared sin, but then the problem persists. The question remains, what do you do with the kings and the patriarchs in the Old Testament who had multiple wives? A claim was made by an elder that they were living in unrepentant sin. And this man that I know, this older man said, wait a second, that's not correct. Where in the Bible does it say, thou shalt not? Where does God forbid what you're forbidding? Where does God call it a sin, what you're calling a sin? The best the elders could do is to point to qualifications for overseers and deacons in Paul's letters to Timothy and to Titus must be the husband of one wife. That's the ideal for overseers and deacons, but that is to say also, you are qualified to be an overseer or a deacon if you are the husband of one wife, you are presumably not disqualified from being a member in good standing if you are the husband to more than one wife. And we know that if we study church history, and we know that if we read our Bibles. But because he was correct and the elders in this case had egg on their face, they church disciplined him out when he would not agree to just keep silent about it and never talk about it again. Well, that's a gag order. And Where does that come from? It comes from selfish ambition and vain conceit, cloaked in a concern for unity, but actually, as a matter of fact, expressing itself. When Christians raised up in churches like that go out into the world, go out into corporations, go out into universities, it expresses itself in their falling silent. Even if there's just a vague sense that a person with some authority might not like it if they would say such and such a thing. But pretty soon what you have is not an amplification of the gospel, but an erasure of the part of the gospel wherein we teach disciples to obey all that Christ has commanded, testifying to the truth, calling the lost sinners to confess and repent, correcting false teaching. If someone gets up in, let's say, for instance, a Southern Illinois university, art therapy counseling program and they say, I'm a Christian and I affirm all of the sin advice that the left affirms. And that's what the Bible really teaches. If a conservative Christian falls silent because the university might punish her, might drop her from the program, might expel her. If a conservative student is harassed and bullied by her fellow classmates because she said, wait a second, I'm the second who's come to examine you, the first to state your case. It is written, it is written, it is written. Is the young lady in question here, Maggie De Jong, if she grows up in a church where the norm is to punish and suppress and to excommunicate anybody who would have any disagreement because they're threatening unity, they're threatening the gospel, does she speak up. Does she file a lawsuit and get this settled in the courts of law? Probably not. When she goes off to work for some company and the company says, you will affirm diversity, equity, inclusivity, cultural Marxism. You will affirm homosexuality, transgenderism. You will use preferred pronouns. You will come to the wedding of your gay or lesbian coworker when they invite you. You will not, even your private social media, post-Bible verses, talk about abortion as murder. You will not criticize COVID policies. You will not criticize the fight against climate change, which is the weather. Then what? How the church practices, how the church engages in public discourse is hugely important to our testimony and not just when it's a conservative Christian in your midst, Christians, who's embarrassing you, not just when it's somebody who has read the Bible more than you have studied it for longer and they correct you and you have to maintain your authority. No, no. It's not only then that our testimony can be protected. It's also when someone disagrees and you listen and you let them say what they're going to say, and if it's not heresy, if it's just you disagree on this, and actually going back centuries, the first several centuries of Christians held to different views and had different practices on this, and they were still brothers and sisters in Christ, it seems to me as though our best testimony to the world that has forgotten how to engage in open and honest critical thinking exercises together in the public square The best testimony is going to be when you let them speak. Let your reasonableness be evident to all. Come, let us reason together and do so publicly and be humble enough to admit when that's a good point. You're right. Also, be honest enough to say, if you personally don't approve of this or that, or you personally don't like such and such, or you personally don't think some other thing is wise, just say that, right? You can say that that's fair. It's when we cross the line into claiming that things are sin that are no sin that we set a dangerous precedent for, for instance, faculty at a university in Illinois muzzling a Christian student without being able to point to any laws she had broken, any policies she had violated. We set the precedent in the church for either things being according to order, and there being a respect, there being fairness and humility, and an earnest desire to know the truth, or the arbitrary exercise of power, which at a certain point forgets why that authority was delegated in the first place, and also fails to respect the limitations on the authority, which are also necessary for the restraining of sin. How about the sin in our own selves, what is restraining that if we believe that power should be absolute, authority should be absolute, if somebody has authority, unless we can point to book chapter verse of God saying to not do it, or God telling us to do it, we just do whatever we're told. You know, it's a funny thing about that, by the way, because that's one of the other hallmarks of this situation up in Montana. You have a pastor one in particular, who during the height of the COVID hysteria in 2020, wrote on behalf of the elders of his church in Montana, a different church than the one he's at right now. But writing on behalf of the elders, a blog post about how they were going to obey then Governor Bullock's mask mandate They were going to obey it, and they were going to enforce it on the congregation. When the Christians were going to gather together on Sunday mornings or any other time for worship, for fellowship, the elders were going to require the wearing of face masks, face coverings per Governor Bullock, Democrat, by the way, no longer in office. And what was the reason? The reason was we can't find book, chapter, verse, where God ever tells us to not wear a face mask. And so therefore, because there is no book, chapter, verse telling us to not wear face masks, it would be no sin for you to wear a face mask. Whatever your conscience privately is telling you about what you are being swept up in and what you are going to be participating in, in the way of an overthrowing of our constitutional order Overthrowing of American society by the radical left. No, doesn't matter. Your conscience is whatever I say your conscience is because I'm an elder, because the governor gave you a lawful order, even if we can't point to a law that actually justifies his mandating this or that other thing. That was the standard of judgment. We can't find book, chapter, verse in the Bible where God said to not wear a face mask. And so therefore you must, because it is no sin. But then when they came to the question of polygamy, just a couple of short years later, and they were teaching on it, this same pastor made the claim that polygamy is a sin. And all the kings and the patriarchs in the Old Testament were living in unrepented sin, all their lives that they had more than one wife. And when there was a challenge, right? When there was a challenge of exactly the same kind that they would have issued to those saying, I can't wear the mask. I think that would be wicked. I couldn't do it in good conscience. When there was the same kind of a challenge, although different and distinct in ways that I'll explain here in just a moment, the same kind of a challenge was issued. Where is it written? You said it was enough to bind the consciences of your congregation And set the example for the larger Bozeman area when it was mask mandate policy and directive at executive order from Governor Bullock, because there was no book, chapter, verse, and therefore it's not a sin. But when it's polygamy, you say you don't need a book, chapter, and verse declaring it a sin for you to declare that it is a sin. And for that matter, when a member of your congregation says, where's that written? You don't church discipline him out for disagreeing with you on the question of polygamy. You church discipline him out for not agreeing to be silent about it, not committing to shutting up about it. If he was still talking about it, by the way, and then the claim is he was being contentious, you say, well, if the Bible does say something about being contentious. I say, well, wait a second. Who was being contentious? Why do you presume it was this older man in the church who was being contentious, why would you not also consider, because you're clearly not, that the response to this man was contentious? You question whether he's even a Christian, with whether he's saved, or if not, at least those who are listening to your messaging on this are questioning. Members of his own family are questioning whether he's even a Christian because you excommunicated him. You didn't even just church discipline him. You excommunicated him. You threw him out of the church and you told the congregation, don't have any contact with him. We don't think that would be helpful. Usually we would obey Matthew 18 and we would go to our brother privately, but we don't need to do that in this case. It's not warranted. It's not necessary in this case. It wouldn't be wise. Oh, okay. So I see. Heads I win, tails you lose. You don't need book, chapter, verse of where Christ commands this or that. You reserve the right to suspend, ignore, override actual commands, like say, for instance, in Matthew 18, because you are in authority. And you also reserve the right to ignore the question when it doesn't support your claim. You ignore the question of where is it written? What this adds up to is a very dangerous conclusion that sin is whatever this pastor says it is. If this pastor says that's no sin at all, then that's all you need to know. If this pastor says that is a sin and you say, where is it written? Get out. Again, that's all you need to know. What he says is a sin is a sin. What he says is not a sin is no sin. Doesn't that set him up to be the final authority? What happened to Sola Scriptura? Where did that go? See, the church is practicing in this way, in far too many cases, on issue after issue. And when it takes a progressive turn, liberalizing, conforming to the pattern of the radical left, it is ugly and wicked and awful. But sometimes it doesn't look like the radical left. Sometimes it just looks like good old-fashioned selfish ambition and vain conceit, and it comes cloaked in a kind of conservatism, and it's no conservatism at all. Because real conservatism, in a Christian sense here, would be, I will go back to the Word. I'm going to be a Berean about this. Imagine, how would it have been if the Bereans, instead of being praised in the Book of Acts for being of a more noble sort than the Jews of Thessalonica, searching the Scriptures daily to see whether the message Paul and Barnabas preached was true, how would it have been if instead Paul and Barnabas had pronounced curses on them? No, no, no. You don't need to check your Bible. You just need to listen to us. God has given us authority. The church in America needs to remember how this actually works, how this is supposed to go. When we remember how this works, we will then be equipped to go out and do every kind of good work in broader society. But until we remember how this is supposed to work, we can only make things worse in broader society. We have to practice this in the church. We have to, we must. If we won't, then we are salt that has lost its savor. Good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. For one last story though, let's talk about a bit of reporting over at the Daily Wire from Ryan Saavedra, July 29th. 2023, GOP Congressman Defends Unloading on Senate Pages Lying on Capitol Rotunda Floor Slams Schumer. Here we have in view Representative Derek Van Orden, Republican from Wisconsin, reportedly having cursed at, yelled at a group of high school-aged Senate pages during a late-night tour this week of the U.S. Capitol. In response to condemnation from Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat New York, Van Orden defended his comments and slammed the Democrat, saying he should, quote, think twice before throwing stones in glass houses, end quote. The former U.S. Navy SEAL was giving a tour to a large group of visitors during the early morning hours on Thursday when he stumbled upon the pages lying on the ground of the Capitol Rotunda taking pictures of the building's dome. And I quote, Wake the F up, you little shits. End quote, Van Orden said, according to a transcript created by one of the pages shortly after the incident occurred. Quote, what the F are you all doing? Get the F out of here. You are defiling the space, you pieces of shit, end quote. Quote, who the F are you? End quote, Van Orden reportedly asked, and one individual said they were Senate pages. Quote, I don't give a F who you are. Get out, you jackasses. Get out, End quote. Van Orden's remarks angered Schumer and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, who both condemned Van Orden. Quote, "I was shocked when I heard about it, and I am further shocked at his refusal to apologize to these young people," Schumer said. Quote, "I can't speak for the House of Representatives, but I do not think that one member's disrespect is shared by this body, by Leader McConnell, and myself." End quote. As Van Orden explains it, see if this takes a little bit of a different. Turn in your mind. Quote, The Capitol rotunda served as a field hospital, where countless Union soldiers died fighting to free men in the Civil War. I have long said our nation's capital is a symbol of the sacrifice our servicemen and women have made for this country, and should never be treated like a frat house common room. Threatening a congressman with bad press to excuse poor behavior is a reminder of everything that's wrong with Washington. Luckily. Bad press has never bothered me, and if it's the price I pay to stand up for what's right, then so be it, end quote. Now, let me touch on this to say a couple of things. One, the profanity we could have done without. Yelling at these pages if they were being disrespectful, that's fine. If they're being presumptuous, if they're being disrespectful, if they're dishonoring a sacred space, yelling at them, I understand cursing at them, I think that's regrettable. I think that that language is common in Washington, D.C. It's common in the U.S. these days. There should be more respect paid to God, first and foremost, and to one another than to let loose, let fly with profanity-laced tirades, to be casually cursing and profane in our speech to one another. But that said, I don't have a problem with Van Orden yelling at these kids to get out of there. Get out. The problem is these Senate pages were being very casual in a space that Van Orden and the rest of us should regard as special. If only because this is symbolic of the government of these United States, if We are casual and flippant about it and careless about it and we will lose it. Then it will be destroyed. The Senate pages should have somebody who is in a position of authority over them, who gives them a instruction on what is proper etiquette, what passes for decorum in these halls of power. And if they are not the kinds who will respect, who will treat with an appropriate degree of honor, these spaces, then exactly what is all this about January 6th? Tell me that. Why is January 6th such a big deal to the Democrats and to the establishment Republicans? Why is January 6th being made out to be this great national tragedy that these hallowed halls of the Capitol building were disrespected by make america great hat-wearing, American-flag-waving Republicans who were let in, by the way. They were let in to the building by Capitol Police. In some cases, escorted around the building by Capitol Police. Why is that turned into a travesty of the gravest severity, but then Senate pages being disrespectful, and getting yelled at for it. That's the Republicans' fault. Why? I'll tell you why. Because it's all a game to these people. Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, it's all the same. It's a game to these people. This shouldn't be a game. And that, I think, is what actually dishonors our nation's capital far more than some teenagers laying on the floor. It's already been dishonored. The reason why these teenagers are dishonoring this space is because the old men well past the age at which they can function on their own, all that was said about Moses when he died at 120 years old cannot be said of them. Their eyes are dimmed. Their vigor is greatly diminished. They have to be told how to vote by their aides, which is to say they are not actually the ones you're voting for. Those senators, those congressmen, are not actually the ones you're voting for. You're actually voting for whoever it is that pulls their strings, whoever it is that tells them, just vote. Yes, just vote no. Just, vo- just, just vote present. Here's your speech. Here's what you say now. Here's where you're going to go next. Here's where to step next. The adults in the room, the elder statesmen, so to speak, are the ones who've actually treated these spaces with a casual contempt. And that's why these young people don't know any better. Honestly, what's the big deal? The whole business is unfortunate. It's all very frustrating. And I don't blame Congressman Derek Van Orden for being frustrated. Again, the profanity, not becoming of a congressman. Please do better, sir, with respect. But the frustration, Mm, I don't blame you one bit for being frustrated. I am also frustrated. This is dangerous. In conclusion, because I really should get going, I've started a couple of new books I want to tell you about. One, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's a package deal with The Abolition of Man, which I've never read. I've never read either The Great Divorce or The Abolition of Man, but I'm going to read both in short order. I've started with The Great Divorce about this hypothetical bus trip to hell and the conversation among those on the bus. Very casual. It's very interesting. It's an allegory of sorts, similar to The Screw Tape Letters. If you liked The screw Tape Letters, you would also like The Great Divorce, I would say, so far. The Abolition of Man is where one of my favorite quotes of C.S. Lewis comes from. And so I've been quoting this quote for years, but I need to read the book to get the broader context to enjoy more where that came from. The quote, if you're curious, is as follows. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful, End quote. That pretty well sums up what's broke in Washington, what's broken in our state capitals, what's broken in so many of our communities, and so many of our homes, we remove the organ and demand the function. We do make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise, but it's all utilitarian, not objective. And this, again, is the difference between the conservative and the so-called progressive, but actually increasingly just transgressive. So I'm reading The Great Divorce, and I will, right after that, read The Abolition of Man. But I'm also reading The Housing Boom and Bust by Thomas Sowell, which is interesting because very much like a allegorical bus trip to hell. So also the tinkering with our economy, which our government has been doing for decades, legal plunder as Frederick Bastiat would say, socialism really that tinkering with the economy is trying to nudge us closer and closer and closer to outright socialism, outright communism which is very similar to a bus trip to hell. But I'm reading the housing boom and bust written back in 2009 or at least published back in 2009 talking about the housing bubble that burst right about the time Lawrence and my oldest and second oldest sons had been born. We had just gotten married. We're trying to get our start. It was a big deal that we couldn't buy a home. It was a big deal that I couldn't get a decent job that paid the bills, that made ends meet, no matter how hard I worked, no, how, no matter how hard I tried. I couldn't get a decent job until I moved back home to Montana, took my wife and our four sons with me in 2012, got into oil and gas. Then we were able to rent. Then we were able to buy a home. Then we were able to get a 12 passenger van and so much else. You can expect when I finish these books, I will be reviewing them. I will be talking with you about them. So stay tuned. Hit subscribe if you haven't already. Share this podcast with somebody you know and like, particularly if you think they would like this podcast. But as I said, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.